Chapter Three of Royal Highness by Thomas Mann, translated by A. Cecil Curtis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayet. Hinaka the Shoemaker. The Grand Duke's second son made his first public appearance on the occasion of his christening. This festivity aroused the same interest in the country as always attached to happenings within the royal family circle. It took place after weeks of discussion and research as to the manner of its arrangement, was held in the court church by the president of the high consistory, Don Vitzelcenos, with all the due ceremonial, and in public, to the extent that the Lord Marshal's office, by the prince's orders, had issued invitations to it to every class of society. Herr von Bull zu Bull, a courtly ritualist of the greatest circumspection and accuracy, in his full-dress uniform, superintended, with the help of two masters of the ceremonies, the whole of the intricate proceedings, the gathering of the princely guests in the gala-rooms, the solemn procession in which they, attended by pages and squires, walked up the staircase of Heinrich the Luxurious, and through a covered passage into the church, the entry of the spectators from the highest to the lowest, the distribution of the seats, the observance of due decorum during the religious service itself, the order of precedence at the congratulations which took place directly after the service was ended, he panted and puffed, smiled ingratiatingly, brandished his staff, laughed in nervous bursts, and kept executing retreating bows. The court church was decorated with plants and draperies. In addition to the representatives of the nobility, of the court and country, and of the higher and lower civil service, tradesmen, country folk, and common artisans in good high humor filled the seats. But in a half-circle of red velvet armchairs in front of the altar sat the relations of the infant, foreign princes as sponsors, and the trusty representatives of such as had not come in person. The assemblage at the christening of the heir apparent six years before had not been more distinguished, for, in view of Albrecht's delicacy, the advanced age of the Grand Duke, and the dearth of Grimberg relations, the person of the second-born prince was at once recognized as an important guarantee for the future of the dynasty. Little Albrecht took no part in the ceremony. He was kept to his bed with an indisposition which Surgeon General Eschrich declared to be of a nervous character. Dom Witzlitzenus preached from a text of the Grand Duke's own choosing. The Courier, a gossiping city newspaper, had given a full account of how the Grand Duke had one day fetched with his very own hands the large metal-clasped Bible out of the rarely visited library, had shut himself up with it in his study, searched in it for a whole hour, at last copied the text he had chosen onto a piece of paper with his pocket-pencil, signed it Johann Albrecht, and sent it to the court preacher. Dom Witzlitzenus treated it in a musical style, so as to speak, like a leitmotif. He turned it inside and out, dressed it in different shapes, and squeezed it dry. He announced it in a whisper, then with the whole power of his lungs, and, whereas, delivered lightly and reflectively at the beginning of his discourse, it seemed a thin, almost unsubstantial subject. At the close, when he for the last time thundered it at the congregation, it appeared richly orchestrated, heavily scored, and pregnant with emotion. Then he passed on to the actual baptism, and carried it out at full length, so that all could see it, 
with due stress on every detail. This, then, was the day of the prince's first public appearance, and that he was the chief actor in the drama was clearly shown by the fact that he was the last one to come on the stage, and that his entry was distinct from that of the rest of the company. Preceded by Herr von Bühl, he entered slowly, in the arms of the mistress of the robes, Baroness von Schulenburg-Dressen, and all eyes were fixed on him. He was asleep in his laces, his veils, and his white silk robe. One of his little hands appeared to be hidden. His appearance evoked unusual delight and emotion. The cynosure and center of attraction, he lay quietly there, bearing it all, as may be supposed, patiently and unassumingly. It was to his credit that he did not make any disturbance, did not clutch or struggle, but, doubtless from innate trustfulness, quietly resigned himself to the state which surrounded him, bore it patiently, and even at that early date sank his own emotions in it. The arms in which he reposed were frequently changed at fixed points in the ceremony. Baroness Schulenburg handed him with a curtsy to his aunt Catherine, who, with a stern look on her face, was dressed in a newly remade lilac silk dress, and wore crown jewels in her hair. She laid him, when the moment came, solemnly in his mother Dorothea's arms, who, in all her stately beauty, with a smile on her proud and lovely mouth, held him out a while to be blessed, and then passed him on. A cousin held him for a minute or two, a child of eleven or twelve years with fair hair, thin sticks of legs, cold bare arms, and a broad red silk sash which stuck out in a huge knot behind her white dress. Her peaked face was anxiously fixed on the master of ceremonies. Once the prince woke up, but the flickering flames of the altar candles and a many-colored shaft of sunlight dust blinded him, and made him close his eyes again. And as there were no thoughts, but only soft, unsubstantial dreams in his head, as, moreover, he was feeling no pain at the moment, he at once fell asleep again. He received a number of names while he slept, but the chief names were Klaus Heinrich, and he slept on in his cot, with its gilded cornice and blue silk curtains, while the royal family feasted in the marble hall, and the rest of the guests in the hall of the knights in his honor. The newspapers reported his first appearance, they described his looks and his dress, and emphasized his truly princely behavior, couching the moving and inspiring account in words which had often done duty on similar occasions. After that, the public for a long time heard little of him, and he nothing of them. He knew nothing as yet, understood nothing as yet, guessed nothing as to the difficulty, danger, and sternness of the life prescribed for him. Nothing in his conduct suggested that he felt any contrast between himself and the great public. His little existence was an irresponsible, carefully supervised dream, played on a stage remote from the public stage, and this stage was peopled with countless tinted phantoms, both stationary and active, some emerging but transiently, some permanently at hand. Of the permanent ones the parents were far in the background, and not altogether distinguishable. They were his parents, that was certain, and they were exalted and friendly, too. When they approached there was a feeling as if everything else slipped away to each side, 
and left a respectable passage along which they advanced towards him to show him a moment's tenderness. The nearest and clearest things to him were two women with white caps and aprons, two beings who were obviously all goodness, purity, and loving-kindness, who tended his little body in every way, and were much distressed when he cried. A close partner in his life, too, was Albrecht, his brother, but he was grave, distant, and much more advanced. When Klaus Heinrich was two years old, another birth took place in the Grimburg, and a princess came into the world. Thirty-six guns were allotted to her, because she was of the female sex, and she was given the name of Ditlinde at the font. She was Klaus Heinrich's sister, and it was a good thing for him that she appeared. She was at first surprisingly small and weak, but she soon grew like him, caught him up, and the two became inseparable. They shared each other's lives, each other's views, feelings, and ideas. They communicated to each other their impressions of the world outside them. It was a world, they were impressions, calculated to produce a reflective frame of mind. In winter they lived in the old castle. In summer they lived in Hollerbrunn, the summer schloss on the river, in the cool, in the scent of the violet hedges with white statues between them. On the way thither, or if at any other time father or mother took them with them in one of the brown carriages with the little golden crown on the door, all of the passers-by stopped, cheered, and took their hats off. For father was the prince and ruler of the country. Consequently, they themselves were prince and princess, undoubtedly in precisely the same sense as were the princes and princesses in the French stories which their Swiss governess told them. That was worth consideration. It was, at any rate, a peculiar occurrence. When other children heard the stories, they necessarily regarded the princes which figured in them from a great distance, and as solemn beings, whose rank was a glorification of reality, and with whom to concern themselves was undoubtedly a chastening of their thoughts, an escape from the ordinary existence. But Klaus Heinrich and Ditlinde regarded the heroes of the stories as their own equals and fellows, they breathed the same air as them, they lived in a schloss like them, they stood on a fraternal footing with them, and were justified in identifying themselves with them. Was it their lot, then, to live always and continually on the height to which others only climbed when stories were being told to them? The Swiss governess, true to her general principles, would have found it impossible to deny it if the children had asked the question in so many words. The Swiss governess was the widow of a Calvinistic minister, and was in charge of both children, each of whom had two ladies' maids as well. She was black and white throughout. Her cap was white, and her dress black. Her face was white, with white warts on one cheek, and her smooth hair had a mixed black and white metallic sheen. She was very precise and easily put out. When things happened which, though quite without danger, could not be allowed, she clasped her white hands and turned her eyes up to heaven. But her quietest and severest mode of punishment for serious occasions was to look sadly at the children, implying that they had lost their self-respect. On a fixed day she began, on a hint from higher quarters, to address Klaus Heinrich and Ditlinde as Grand Ducal Highness, and from that day she was more easily put out than before. 
but Albrecht was called Royal Highness. Aunt Catherine's children were members of the family only on the distaff side, and so were of less importance. But Albrecht was crown prince and heir apparent, so that it was not at all unfitting that he should look so pale and distant and keep so much to his bed. He wore Austrian coats with flat pockets and cut long behind. His head had a big bump at the back and narrow temples, and he had a long face. While still quite young, he had come through a serious illness, which, in the opinion of Surgeon General Eschrich, was the reason for his heart having shifted over to the right. However that might be, he had seen death face to face, a fact which had probably intensified the shy dignity which was natural to him. He seemed to be extremely standoffish, cold from embarrassment, and proud from lack of graciousness. He lisped a little, and then blushed at doing so, because he was always criticizing himself. His shoulder-blades were a little uneven. One of his eyes had some weakness or other, so that he used glasses for writing his exercises, which helped to make him look old and wise. Albrecht's tutor, Dr. Veit, a man with hanging mud-colored mustaches, hollow cheeks, and wan eyes unnaturally far apart, was always at his left hand. Dr. Veit was always dressed in black, and carried a book dangling down his thigh, with his index finger thrust between its leaves. Klaus Heinrich felt that Albrecht did not care much for him, and he saw that it was not only because of his inferiority in years. He himself was tender-hearted and prone to tears, that was his nature. He cried when anybody looked sadly at him, and when he knocked his forehead against a corner of the nursery table so that it bled, he howled from sympathy with his forehead. But Albrecht had faced death, yet never cried on any condition. He stuck his short, rounded underlip a little forward and sucked it lightly against the upper one, that was all. He was most superior. The Swiss governess referred in so many words to him in matters of comme il faut as a model. He had never allowed himself to converse with the gorgeous creatures who belonged to the court, not exactly men and human beings, but lackeys, as Klaus Heinrich had sometimes done in unguarded moments, for Albrecht was not curious. The look in his eyes was that of a lonely boy who had no wish to let the world intrude upon him. Klaus Heinrich, on the contrary, chatted with the lackeys from that same wish, and from an urgent, though perhaps dangerous and improper desire, to feel some contact with what lay outside the charmed circle. But the lackeys, young and old, at the doors, in the corridors and the passage-rooms, with their sand-colored gaiters and brown coats, on the red-gold lace of which the same little crown as on the carriage-doors was repeated again and again, they straightened their knees when Klaus Heinrich chatted to them, laid their great hands on the seams of the thick velvet breeches, bent a little towards him, so that the aiguillettes dangled from their shoulders, and returned various, highly proper answers, the most important part of which was the address, Grand Ducal Highness, and smiled as they did so with an expression of cautious sympathy, which recalled the words of the old song, the lad that is born to be king. Sometimes when he got the chance, Klaus Heinrich went on voyages of discovery in uninhabited parts of the Schloss 
with Ditlinda, his sister, when she was old enough. At that time he was having lessons from Schulrat Dröger, rector of the city schools, who was chosen to be his first tutor. Schulrat Dröger was a born pedagogue. His index finger, with its folds of dry skin and gold stoneless signet ring, followed the line of print when Klaus Heinrich read, waiting before going on to the next word until the preceding one had been read. He came in a frock-coat and white waistcoat, with the ribbon of some inferior order in his buttonhole, and in broad, shiny boots with brown upper leathers. He wore a pointed gray beard, and bushy gray hair grew out of his big, broad ears. His brown hair was brushed up into points on his temples, and so precisely parted as to show clearly his yellow dry scalp, which was full of holes like canvas. But thin gray hair was visible under the strong brown hair, behind and at the sides. He bowed slightly to the lackeys who opened the door for him to the big schoolroom, at whose table Klaus Heinrich sat waiting for him. But to Klaus Heinrich he did not confine himself to a superficial bow as he entered the room, but made a pronounced and deliberate bow before he came up to him, and waited for his exalted pupil to offer him his hand. This Klaus Heinrich did, and the fact that he did so twice, not only when he greeted him, but also when he took his departure, just in the graceful and winning way in which he had seen his father give his hand to those who expected it, seemed to him far more important and essential than all the instruction which came between the two ceremonies. After Schulrat had come and gone any number of times, Klaus Heinrich had imperceptibly gained a knowledge of all sorts of practical things. To everybody's surprise he was quite at home in every kind of reading, writing, and arithmetic, and could reel off to order the names of the towns in the Grand Duchy pretty well without an omission. But, as has been said, this was not what was in his opinion really necessary and essential for him. From time to time, when he was inattentive at his lessons, the Schulrat rebuked him with a reference to his exalted calling. "'Your exalted calling requires you,' he would say, or, "'You owe it to your exalted calling.' What was his calling, and how was it exalted? Why did the lackeys smile as if to say, The lad that is born to be king? And why was his governess so much put out when he let himself go a little in speech or action? He looked round him, and at times, when he looked steadily and long and forced himself to probe the essence of the phenomena around him, a dim apprehension arose in him of the aloofness of his position. He was standing in one of the gala-rooms, the silver hall, in which, as he knew, his father, the Grand Duke, received solemn deputations. He happened to have wandered into it by himself, and he took stock of his surroundings. It was winter-time and cold, and his little shoes were reflected in the glass-clear yellow squares of the parquet, which spread like a sheet of ice before him. The ceiling, covered with silvered arabesque work, was so high that a long metal shaft was necessary to allow the many-armed silver chandelier, with its forest of tall white candles, to swing in the middle of the great space. Below the ceiling came silver-framed coat-of-arms in faded colors. The walls were edged with silver, and hung with white silk with yellow spots, not to mention a split here and there. A sort of monumental baldachin, resting on two strong silver columns 
and decorated in front with a silver garland, broken in two places, from the top of which looked down a portrait of a deceased, powdered ancestress draped in imitation ermine, formed the chimney-piece. On each side of the fireplace were broad, silvered armchairs upholstered in torn white silk. On the side-walls opposite each other towered enormous silver-framed mirrors, whose glass was covered with blind spots, and on each side of whose broad white marble ledges stood two candelabra which carried big white candles, like the sconces on the walls all round, and like the four silver candlesticks which stood in the corners. Before the high windows to the right, looking over the Albrechtsplatz, whose outer ledges were covered with snow, white silk curtains, yellow-spotted, with silver cords and trimmed with lace, fell in rich and heavy folds to the floor. In the middle of the room, under the chandelier, a moderate-sized table with a pedestal made like a knobby silver tree-stump, and a top made of eight triangles of opaque mother-of-pearl, stood useless, as there were no chairs round it, and could only serve, and be meant to serve, at the very best, as a support for your highness, when the lackeys opened the doors, and ushered in the solemn figures in court dress, who came to present their respects to you. Klaus Heinrich looked round the hall, and clearly saw that there was nothing here which reminded him of the realities which Schulrat Drüge, for all his bows, was always impressing upon him. Here all was Sunday and solemnity, just as in church, where also he would have felt the calls made on him by his tutor out of place. Everything here was severe and empty show and formal symmetry, self-sufficient, pointless, and uncomfortable, whose functions were obviously to create an atmosphere of awe and tension, not of freedom and ease, to inculcate an attitude of decorum and discreet self-obliteration towards an unnamed object. And it was cold in the silver hall, cold as in the halls of the Snow King, where the children's hearts froze stiff. Klaus Heinrich walked over the glassy floor and stood at the table in the middle. He laid his right hand lightly on the mother-of-pearl table, and placed the left hand on his hip, so far behind that it rested almost in the small of his back, and was not visible from in front, for it was an ugly sight, brown and wrinkled, and had not kept pace with the right in its growth. He stood resting on one leg, with the other a little advanced, and kept his eyes fixed on the silver ornaments of the door. It was not the place nor the attitude for dreaming and yet he dreamed. He saw his father, and looked at him as he looked at the hall, to try to grasp his meaning. He saw the dull haughtiness of his blue eyes, the furrows which, proudly and morosely, ran from nostril down to his beard, and were often deepened or accentuated by weariness and boredom. Nobody dared to address him or to go freely up to him and speak to him unasked, not even the children. It was forbidden." it was dangerous. He answered, it is true, but he answered distantly and coldly. A look of helplessness, of gêne, passed over his face, which Klaus Heinrich was quite able to understand. Papa made a speech and sent his petitioners away. That is what always happened. He gave an audience at the beginning of the court ball, and at the end of the dinner with which the winter began. He went with Mamma through the rooms and halls in which the members of the court were gathered, 
went through the marble hall and the gala rooms, through the picture gallery, the hall of the knights, the hall of the twelve months, the audience chamber, and the ballroom, went not only in a fixed direction, but along a fixed path which bustling Herr von Bühl kept free for him, and addressed a few words to the assembled throng. Whoever was addressed by him bowed low, left a space of parquet between himself and papa, and answered soberly and with signs of gratification. Thereupon papa greeted them over the intervening space, from the stronghold of precise regulations which prescribed the other's movements and warranted his own attitude, greeted them smilingly and lightly, and passed on. Smilingly and lightly. Of course, of course, Klaus Heinrich quite understood it, the look of helplessness which passed for one moment over papa's face when anybody was impetuous enough to address him unasked, understood it, and shared his feeling of gêne. It wounded something, some soft virgin envelope of our existence, which was so essential to it that we stood helpless when anybody roughly broke through it. And yet it was this same something which made our eyes so dull and gave us those deep furrows of boredom. Klaus Heinrich stood and saw. He saw his mother and her beauty, which was famed and extolled far and wide. He saw her standing, en robe du ceremonie, in front of her great candle-lighted glass, for sometimes, on solemn occasions, he was allowed to be present when the court hairdresser and the bedchamber women put the last touches to her toilette. Herr von Knobelsdorff was also present when Mamma put on jewels from the crown regalia, watched and noted down the stones which she decided to use. With all the wrinkles at the corners of his eyes showing, he would make Mamma laugh with his droll remarks, so that her soft cheeks filled with lovely little dimples. But her laugh was full of art and grace, and she looked in the glass as she laughed, as if she were practicing it. People said that Slav blood flowed in her veins, and that it was that which gave the sweet radiance to her deep blue eyes and the night of her raven hair. Klaus Heinrich was like her, so he heard people say, in that he too had steel-blue eyes with dark hair, while Albrecht and Ditlinde were fair, just as Papa had been before his hair turned grey. But he was far from handsome, owing to the breadth of his cheekbones, and especially to his left hand, which Mamma was always reminding him to hide adroitly in the side pocket of his coat, behind his back, or under the breast of his jacket, especially when his affectionate impulses prompted him to throw both his arms round her. Her look was cold when she bade him mind his hand. He saw her as she was in the picture in the marble hall, in a short silk dress with lace flounces and long gloves, which showed only a glimpse of her ivory arm under her puffed sleeves, a diadem in the night of her hair, her stately form erect, a smile of cool perfection on her strangely hard lips, and behind her the metallic blue wheel of a peacock's tail. Her face was soft, but its beauty made it stern, and it was easy to see that her heart too was stern and absorbed in her beauty. She slept far into the day, when a ball or party was in prospect, and ate only yolks of eggs, so as not to overload herself. 
then in the evening she was radiant as she walked on papa's arm along the prescribed path through the halls gray-haired dignitaries blushed when they were addressed by her and the courier reported that it was not only because of her exalted rank that her royal highness had been the queen of the ball yes people felt happier for the sight of her whether it was at the court or outside in the streets or in the afternoon driving or riding in the park and their cheeks kindled flowers and cheers met her all hearts went out to her and it was clear that the people in cheering her were cheering themselves and that their glad cries meant that they were cheered and elevated by the sight of her but klaus heinrich knew well that mamma had spent long anxious hours on her beauty that there was practice and method in her smiles and greetings and that her own pulse beat never the quicker for anything or anyone. Did she love anyone? Himself, Klaus Heinrich, for instance, for all his likeness to her? Why, of course she did, when she had time to, even when she coldly reminded him of his hand. But it seemed as if she reserved any expression or sign of her tender feelings for occasions when lookers-on were present who were likely to be edified by them. Klaus Heinrich and Ditlinde did not often come into contact with their mother, chiefly because they, unlike Albrecht, the heir apparent, for some time past, did not have their meals at their parents' table, but apart with the Swiss governess, and when they were summoned to Mamma's boudoir, which happened once a week, the interview consisted in a few casual questions and polite answers, giving no scope for displays of feeling while its whole drift seemed to be the proper way to sit in an armchair with a teacup full of milk. But at the concerts which took place in the Marble Hall every other Thursday under the name of the Grand Duchess's Thursdays, and were so arranged that the court sat at little gilt-legged velvet-covered tables, while the leading tenor Schramm from the court theatre, accompanied by an orchestra, sang so lustily that the veins swelled on his bald temples at the concerts klaus heinrich and ditlinde in their best clothes were sometimes allowed in the hall for one song and the succeeding pause when mamma showed how fond she was of them showed it to them and to everybody else in so heartfelt and expressive a way that nobody could have any doubt about it she summoned them to the table at which she sat and told them with a happy smile to sit beside her, laid their cheeks on her shoulders or bosom, looked at them with a soft, soulful look in her eyes, and kissed them both on forehead and mouth. Then the ladies bent their heads and their eyelids quivered, while the men slowly nodded and bit their lips in order, in manly wise, to restrain their emotions. Yes, it was beautiful, and the children felt they had their share in the effect, which was greater than anything Schramm the singer could procure with his most inspired notes, and nestled close to Mamma, For Klaus Heinrich at last realized that it was in the nature of things, no business of ours, to have a simple feeling and to be made happy by it, but that it was our duty to make our tenderness visible to the hall and to exhibit it, that the hearts of our guests might swell. End of section 4